Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful Rabbi Steve Leader, author of five incredible and soulful books, including For You When I Am Gone, which is about the legacy of an ethical will, which is more about words than things. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. There are 12 questions that enable every person who's willing to, to answer them to reevaluate their life and their legacy. Because what I have found with my father's death is I miss not a single material thing about my father. I mean, I have his hat on the shelf behind me and I have a couple of his old tools, but that's it. What I really cherish, the inheritance I really cherish, are the values, the laughter, the music, the food, my love of nature. That's his legacy. His powerful bullshit meter, his powerful moral compass, his love of peoplehood. That's what we want to be sure we bequeath to our loved ones when we're gone. But it's more than just a bequest, because when you ask yourself questions like, what is love? What makes me happy? What has been my greatest failure? What do I regret? What do I want my epitaph to be? What would I say at my own funeral as a final blessing to my loved ones? These are the kinds of questions that enable us to ask whether or not we are living the life we say we believe in and the life we say matters. So says Steve Leader, senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and the best-selling author of five books. In our conversation today, we talk about death and the creation of ethical wills, the subject of Rabbi Leader's most recent book, For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions That Tell a Life Story. The book, born of his experience helping thousands of people navigate loss, is a guide to writing a meaningful letter about your life, 
a so-called ethical will, which you can do at any point and any time. Things are not our legacy, the rabbi tells us, and our estate plan will not nourish our loved ones. But our words and our stories have the power to provide something lasting and meaningful for generations to come. Rabbi Leader pushes us to examine our lives, our joys, our regrets, our successes, and our failures, and to present those stories, brokenness and all, to those we love. Doing so, he says, will not only hold our loved ones when we are gone, but it can serve to redirect us now as it forces us to examine the alignment between our professed values and the way in which we are actually living. His major takeaway, don't wait. Our bodies may disintegrate, but our lives are defined by our stories, and we have the ability to create and leave behind worlds of meaning with our words. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I am writing about religion, actually. I'm writing a book about the patriarchy and women and the seven deadly sins mm. and how they've informed, culturally informed or circumscribed the lives of women and sort of where they came from and wow. how yeah. patriarch, like just, yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. Oh boy. Mm. <laughs> but it's weird. this idea of sinning and what is it? What was the actual intention? I mean, they're fascinating cultural concepts that were never in the Bible. And so it's well, really, yes. Yes and no, right? I mean, well, where do you think they're in the Old Testament? I think they're stated in that way. Not in that way, no. Yeah, but but the foundational values they articulate definitely, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's but it's interesting the way that then they were codified and then assigned to Mary Magdalene. Yeah. In six hundred. Well, everyone everyone rips off the Jews. I mean, that's just how it works. (laughs) Evagrius Ponticus. Everybody loves our style. That's just the way it is. It's true. Oh my God. It is. Every every noble idea in Western culture comes from the Torah. People just don't know. They just don't know. People don't. Yeah. Well, it's a tribe. It's a tribe. And the tribe has its own religion. But it's not the sum total of the tribe or the tribal experience. Right. And the other tricky part of this, like I'm happy to talk with you about this anytime you want to talk about it, because it really is, for me, something I've, I mean, I've dedicated my life to it. There has never been a Judaism. There have always been Judaisms. Mm. And that is part of the beauty of it, but also part of the challenge because it it's the answer to Jewish questions are always, it depends. Right. And I love that about Judaism, but it's not for everyone. Isn't that what also, though, makes it a living faith in the yes. context of, of course. yeah, and the fact that it's continually Even like the Hebrew word, like the psycholinguistics of it, the Hebrew word for law, the Jew, for Jewish law, religious law, doctrine, commandments, is halacha, and it comes from the verb to walk or to move or to be going. Mm. So the view of the law is evolutionary. The very mm. word used for it is evolutionary. Interesting. That's beautiful. I always thought it was just mitzvah. Well, no. mitzvah means commandment. Okay. So, which has its own very interesting, because people think mitzvah means good deed, and it doesn't. It means commandment. And the interesting thing about that is, can you have an imperative? Can you have a commandment without a commander? 
Mm. Right? Because this, yeah. these are people who say, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not a believer, or I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And so I always like to dig into that with people and what they really what they're really saying. Because usually I would say without exception, when people say to me, you know, I don't, I'm not a believer, I don't believe in God, I just say, well, what do you believe in? And they always, always without exception, go on to articulate some very, you know, very deeply spiritual concept. They'll say something like, you know, nature or humanity or love or, you know, whatever, which is what I mean when I say God. So what their real objection is, is now this is just particularly for Jews, I think, but probably others. When American Jews or Western Jews say, I don't believe in God, I think what they have really is not a spiritual objection, but a psycholinguistic objection. Because when we talk about God in English in America, we feel like we sound like evangelical Christians mm. with whom we do not agree. Right. And so if I say something to you like, you know, God is love, you would think, is the rabbi like, is he a pastor? Is he a, does he have a TV show? <laughs> No, does he, does he like take credit cards? Who is this guy? Because when we say the word God, they've monopolized God talk in English and shut out the rest of us. And so I, I just tell people use whatever word you want. I don't care. Do you think you made the sunrise this morning? No, we all know there's something at work greater than us. And whatever you want to call it is fine with me. We're all describing the same mystery. And I'm okay with that because the word has, in a way, been so monopolized that it's it's verboten for most of us. That's a fascinating conversation that I would love to have with you. And even just this idea of sort of the, the way that all, I mean, you think about sort of Abraham, right? I feel like most a lot of people don't understand that there was theoretically, historically, or psychically, psychographically one patriarch of all three main significant religions and that essentially everyone's talking about the same ineffable quality right and the found the fundamental idea of the oneness because okay so the two great ideas really world-changing ideas that jews brought to the world to civilization through Torah, through the characters of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. The first is this idea, this this anti-pagan idea. You know, it was all a reaction against paganism. And one of the ideas of paganism is that there there are multi-deities who live in a meta-universe above that of humankind, and for for whom humankind are uh, is of little to no concern and it's kind of like a downton abbey or below deck kind of thing where there's this upper life and the lower life and they mirror each other and these gods are constantly at war with each other the peace god and the war god the earth and the and the sun god the sun and the moon god the earth and the water right i'm oversimplifying but in other words the energy that sustained that sustains life and reality is an energy born of conflict, of tension. And then Judaism comes along and says, no, 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 no. It's all one. There's a single unifying principle to all of existence. And that existence 
is is sustained through oneness and wholeness not this i mean that's the that's why our creation myth it posits a single creator so that existence is not at war with itself constantly in order to create the energy to sustain itself so that's the first big idea i wrote my rabbinical thesis on einstein and part of it was how his unified field theory was the same as the Shema, that all is one. The second big idea also in contradistinction to paganism is for in pagan, the pagan point of view is that life is eternally cyclical, that you and I are merely the newest cast of actors playing out the identical drama of the cast before us and before that and before that and before that and that there was nothing any of us could do to change the drama and change the narrative and then judaism comes along and says no 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 life is is linear reality is linear and we are not trapped in yesterday's ways we have agency we can change ourselves, we can change others, we can change the direct, the, not the direction, but the course of history and life itself. That's why Judaism doesn't date itself to a prior event. Jews see themselves in relation to a future event, which mm -hmm. is this messianic era or age. So we're oriented, not, we're oriented to the future, not the past. And this idea that life can change, that we can change, that's a very powerful, radical Jewish idea that has mm. permeated all of Western culture. Totally. Not Eastern culture, but Western culture. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, Becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started, so it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature regulating and incredibly soft and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. 
Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. It's interesting. I work with this woman. This might be too too out there for you. We'll see. But her name's Krista Schumacher, and she channels Yeshua. And these transmissions, I think, are stunning from Yeshua. And he talks about very much being a Jew. And he also talks about, too, the this idea of the why polytheism or that version of paganism had to go also in the sense of this overly you could find a god to justify any action and that there was just there were terrible things happening in the name of this polytheistic idea right. like kids being disemboweled through rape etc or, or being it, being fed to being sacrificed to Moloch i mean you know yeah that story about Abraham and Isaac is really a story that says we do not slaughter right. our children for God, right? Right. So yes, yeah. And Jesus was a rabbi teaching Judaism. It was really Paul yeah. who kind of reinvented the whole thing. And I'll tell you that. And Paul then was re- potentially misinterpreted. Yes, and I'll tell you if the Jew, if the rabbis of the day had agreed that you could become saved without circumcision. If they had been willing to give up on circumcision as a way to be saved, to be made a Jew, there would be a billion Jews in the world today, not a billion Christians. Why was that chosen as the covenant? The truth is no one knows for sure, but we do know that that was, for. I mean, I have a theory about it, which is that back then Judaism was a patrilineal religion. It became matrilineal around during the Roman period when Jewish women were getting raped and they didn't know who the fathers were. So the rabbis literally changed Judaism from patrilineal to matrilineal because you always know who the mother is, at least back then. So A, it was patrilineal. And we all know, you know, what men think about their penises, right? It's the center of the universe. And and in a way it is, if fertility, if, if perpetuating the tribe is your primary concern. And even like, you know, when you swore an oath in the Bible, it says, for example, like Joseph put his hand under Jacob's thigh. That's a euphemism. You would actually hold a man's testes. That's where the word testifying. Exactly. Right. You made a promise and you kept it. So this was, this was the epicenter of existence. And I think that has something to do with why you would mark someone is a Jew in that way. But beyond that, who the hell knows? But we do know it was also meant, if you were an adult and wanted to convert, it was meant to really keep people out who weren't absolutely committed. And Paul was willing to forego it and say you could be saved without it. And people didn't walk to Christianity, they ran. (laughs) And you can understand why. And so I asked the preeminent scholar on the, what's called the intertestamental period. I said, you know, if the rabbis had been more flexible, would there be a billion Jews or a billion Christians in the world today? And he said unequivocally, there'd be a billion Jews. Yeah. Crazy, no, huh? So it is, it's fascinating. And I don't know as much about Paul as I would like, but reading like Bert Ehrman and sort of the way that 
I mean, it's it, these ideas are so obvious when you hear them, but then you're like, oh, right. Like, there, no, there are no original documents. And all of this is transcribed and transcribed and translated and transcribed and, right. and people edited it according to the preferences of the day. And so isn't there a lot to suggest that a lot of the anti-Semitism that people sometimes read into Paul or blaming of Jews for the death of Jesus is just was a fabrication or was a retranslation centuries later and an insertion. And with its own cultural bias. It's really interesting. But the idea of Tiamat and this destruction of the goddess and and then we think about this idea of Adam and Eve or that being a Sumerian myth that was then retold, right? I feel as a woman and then a woman whose dad is Jewish and so I always felt rejected by the faith. Although you now know that originally Judaism was patrilineal. So I count? It was the, it was the you absolutely count. It was the it was the father. You now know why the law was changed. Yeah. So what the reform movement, you know, Judaism has denominations, just like Christianity. The reform movement said 40 years ago, look, if it was men, at, if it was patrilineal at one point and matrilineal at another, then either should be acceptable to us. Yeah. So for okay. most, most of the Jews in America, you're in. Amazing. Yeah. But what's your perception of sort of the missing feminine principle or the the fact that covenants were made with men? Like, how do women like me reconcile myself? How am I to reconcile myself with any faith? The same way, you know, my my little brother Greg is gay and I'm still a lover of Judaism. I think we need to get to a place where we're willing to say, you know, the the tradition at that point in its evolution may for whatever reason have been correct in its own day but it they were wrong i mean if you're not willing to do that then slavery's okay concubinage is okay stoning rebellious children to death is okay excluding women treating women like not treating them like property women as property as is property. okay Stoning homosexuals to death is okay, and none of it's okay. Now, and and I can give you every sort of explanation in the book about, oh, well, the homosexuality thing, if you look at it, it's in a long list of sexual crimes, and what they were really legislating against was, was the Greco-Roman idea of sex between grown men and small boys, and that's what they were talking about. I can like, you know, there's this old joke, you can scratch an itch like this or like this. <laughs> I can do this all day long, but I'm also comfortable saying it's just wrong. Right. And the whole point here, as you mentioned earlier, too, and this is, you know, I thought for some reason when I heard this in a Yeshua transmission, it really hit something deeply resonant in my heart. He said effectively, like, as you evolve, you evolve the divine. Like we are codependent in evolution here. Yes, and of course. And, and yeah. there God has a personality in the Bible. There's a whole, like something called personalist theology, which, you know, that's the best humans can do with our small puny minds is to anthropomorphize God. I mean, we can't help it. And, and I think it's okay. It's the best we can do in some ways. So, you know, we have amendments to the constitution. How do you feel about being an American given that women couldn't vote until a hundred years ago? Well, they were wrong and now we're right. And okay. I mean, right. are you not, are you not, American? Of course you are. Do you not right. share American values? Of course you do. 
Should it say brotherhood and sisterhood from sea to shining sea? Yeah, it should. It doesn't. Okay. I mean, I think some of it is you just got to realize that all faith traditions are a response to modernity. And back then it was modernity. Like slavery is a good example. The slavery of the Bible was a tremendous step forward even though from our perspective, it seems like nothing but good old fashioned subjugation and slavery. But actually the fact that you could only keep a slave for seven years and then the slave had to be allowed to go free unless the slave wanted to, the fact that the slave celebrated the Sabbath along with everyone else, there are all kinds of things that in in and of its time were revolutionary and positive. But by today's standards, look, the way we're treating breast cancer today is going to look like leeching and bleeding in 50 years. I know. But no, we it's got, true. What are you going to do? You know? Yeah. No, exactly. And as you mentioned, you know, slavery, what the foundations of slavery are tied to the beginning of patriarchy when all women were enslaved effectively. They were, I mean, they some, were property. Property, yeah. But in the Torah, the daughters of Zelochafat, you know, the inheritance was always the eldest son and there was no son. And they they go to Moses and say, you know, this isn't fair. And guess what? Moses says, you're right. And you right. have the right to inherit property. So we do, we do make progress. We're evolving. And, you know, I think that's just the nature of civilization. So I think as a woman... I can't speak for you, obviously, or feel for you, obviously, but I would say that it's perfectly fine to say they were just, they may have been right in their own day, but they're certainly wrong by today's standards. I actually think a thousand years from now, when historians write about this period we're living in right now, Jewish historians or historians of Judaism, they will conclude that the full and complete inclusion of women as equals in Jewish life by the reform movement is the single most important development of our era. And by era, I'm talking about two or three centuries of Jewish mm-hmm. life. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's going to be looked back on as the great decision. Going back to this idea of death, because I think about this in my own life and becoming a more spiritual, far more spiritual person this Saturday. So in three days, it's the five-year anniversary of my brother-in-law dying suddenly in his sleep when he was 39, my brother's husband. He was my best friend. And that really, as I'm sure you've seen in your tending to thousands of people who are dying or are in mourning, for me was the door like that was a moment in my life of transcendent I don't don't even know how to describe it I'm sure this is something you've observed over and over and over again but it was a door that I walked through that completely changed my life yes you know Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends Mm. and it really is that simple it really is yes it is but until you experience that reality there is this almost necessary denial that is required. I mean, we know theoretically people die who, and people we love could die. 
but until it actually happens, you, you cannot grasp the profundity of it. You know, I've always wanted to write this book called How to Have Your Second Child First. It's a, <laughs> right? It's a great title, okay? But you can't write that book. You have to live the first in order to raise the second the way you raise the second. I can, I can give you books about swimming and show you Netflix specials on swimming, and I could bring Lenny Crazelton in or, or whoever to talk to you about swimming. I could do that for 20 years and put you in the pool and you're going to drown because I've only taught you about swimming. I haven't gotten in the water with you. You haven't gotten in the water. And so what happened to your brother-in-law moved you from a theoretical understanding of death and therefore life mm -hmm. and a theoretical understanding of grief and loss to the real thing. And it that's what changed you was the reality of it. And you know, I wish what I'm about to say wasn't true. I have come to the conclusion that death is not only the great teacher, it is the only teacher. Imagine if we lived deathless lives. We'd be something other than human for sure. Yeah. No no one no one would have ambition, no one would change anything, no one would probably have a partner, no one would have children. There would literally be no purpose to existence. It would be like that paganism, but not generationally. It would just be individuals living in the same bloody circle all the time. So it is actually death that gives life its meaning. No, I profoundly agree. It's It gives it, obviously, the measure. There's also the promise in some ways of which I know seems so counter. It's such a, as I'm sure you've found writing about this, this is the one thing that people don't want to talk about or contemplate or think about. It's too scary. And yet it's the only doorway th that actually gives you any freedom from yeah. that fear. So it offers yeah. tremendous liberation. And, but getting, getting there, getting to the point where you have to tussle with it is something that most of us, I mean, even reading the opening quote, I was in tears. It's so hard to think about. Our attachments are so deep. And, and the idea isn't to d detach, right? That's the point. Well, I, I once, in my very first book, which was like 30 years ago, I wrote an essay called All Life is Separation. And I think that mm. was, you know, that was early Steve Leader, was the embryonic phase of what, of the book in front of you now, really, all these years later. And it helps people to know, and I've had this conversation with literally more than a thousand people. When people are actually actively dying, I'm talking about a day or two, and I visit with them. I always ask, you know, are you afraid? Elise, are you afraid? And the answer 100% of the time has been no. Mm. Because when you are really dying, it is the most natural thing in the world. And the closest example I can give you that we, the living, can appreciate is think of the time you were suffering the worst, the worst jet lag in your life. I mean, you were just leaden. All you wanted to do 
was get into that hotel bed and pull the covers up and go to sleep. You didn't care it was noon. You weren't afraid to go to sleep. You weren't anxious about going to sleep. You weren't sorry about or remorseful. All you want to do is rest. Mm. And that's what it is to be dying for most people. To some people get hit by buses, sure, but they're not afraid of dying either because they didn't see it coming. Right. So the counterintuitive good news here for people who don't want to think about death or dying and are, or are afraid of death is if you are afraid of dying, it's not your day. Anxiety, mm. anxiety is for the living. Okay. So when you're really, <laughs> I know it's funny, but you know, it's helpful when you're really dying, you'll be fine. Better than fine. Yeah. If you're worried about it, Take a breath because it's not your day. And and I find that that also helps us approach the dying differently. You know, there's just mm -hmm. so much to talk about here, but that basic fundamental fear is is generally not evidenced in death. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep. Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Do you find, you know, so Peter, who was 39, died in his sleep of a undiagnosed heart condition. And it's funny because he was in some ways, the most complete person that I know at 39. And he obviously didn't want to die and had no idea that he was going to die. But yet it was, it sounds horrible. It was at his bro older brother's wedding and there were like hundreds of photos taken of him the day before he died. There was like something incredible, like his whole family was there. But I think of him and the way that my brother eulogized him as like the most complete person I know. And in some ways, you know, not that he was prepared and that's a whole nother thing. And I love, we need to talk about ethical wills and also just like the practicalities of preparing for your death because it is a loving thing to do, the most loving thing you can do. So he was not practically prepared, but there was something about his life as it was. And it wasn't, it's not, it, there were 1,500, I mean, this is what happens at young people's funerals right yes, probably 1800 yes. people there yes and and it's not a rose-colored experience of him if that makes sense so what do you is that your experience when people who are young pass that there is this of course they needed more time and yet I mean I don't want to make it trite but that and there's yet, a completeness well it depends on the person yeah he sounds to me, Peter sounds to me like he was the kind of person who really chose to live until he would die, whenever that would be. He didn't live his life waiting 
you know, there was many years ago, a psychologist mm-hmm. named William Marston who did a study and he asked, I, I don't know how, I think it was 3000 people, what they were waiting for. They what were do waiting. you have to live for? That was the question. Oh well, yeah. What do you have to live for? And what and <laughs> they were, yeah, that's right. And they were all waiting for something. Yeah. I'm waiting to pay off the mortgage. I'm waiting till the kids go to college. I'm waiting to lose weight. I'm waiting to, you know, retire. And it was like 90% of people waiting instead of living. Peter sounds to me like he was living. Yeah. Not that we don't have some sense of delayed gratification, et cetera, but he lived until he died. And that is one of the ways in which death can be a great teacher. When my father died, and you know, the beauty of what remains is sort of this journey from Steve the rabbi to Steve the son and how much the rabbi got wrong when he was the son. But my relationship to money, for example, has changed significantly since my father died. Like we're building that little house in Joshua Tree in the desert. I'm not waiting. I am not waiting. If my, if my father knew what we were spending on the hardware loan, he'd like come back to haunt me, you know? But I think that death is a, is a completeness and it's robbery. Mm. But only for the living. You know, I, I often say, I'll let you in on a little rabbi trade secret of mine. When you're, when you're constructing a eulogy, and when I teach this to rabbinical students, I tell them the very first thing you have to do is you have to address the feeling in the room. You have to dial into the frequency of the people in that room, of the living. And so in the case of Peter's death, the frequency was this is so awful for him. This is so awful for him. And this is also true, you know, when sometimes it's cancer or Alzheimer's, whatever. This is so terrible. And my first job is to say, this is our pain. This is our loss, not his. He's beyond pain and loss, wherever he is, wherever his soul is. It's beyond pain and loss and doctors and needles and tubes or the nursing home or the wheelchair or the war. This is our sorrow. The rabbis called death perfect sleep. Mm. Obviously, it's a metaphor, but it's the perfect part that's important. It's a part of the wholeness of life. And I would say when people ask me, you know, what do you think about the afterlife? I say, well, I do believe because I've seen so many dead bodies that there's so much more to us than our bodies, so much more to us than our corporeal beings. You know, when I looked at my dad's body, that wasn't my dad. Right. So there's more to us than the physical. But when people ask me, you know, what do you think about it? I say, I think about it as much as I think about what life was like before I was born. What was my life before I was born? I don't, I don't know. And I don't think about it. Do you ever think about where you were before you were born? If anywhere? Who knows? I kind of believe we've been here many times, but I don't know. Who knows? Do you you lose any sleep over it? No. No. And so I kind of look like, look at it like that. Like it's the great mystery and we'll know when we know. But it's interesting and you get at this sort of practically and spiritually 
in this new book, but this idea of the word, word, I loved that sort of etymology lesson in Hebrew and this idea that word and thing are the same. And the ephemeral nature, like the impact of us as we live on in our ancestors' bodies. And I think about the way that you talked about sort of the corporal nature of, of someone's presence. And with Peter, it's like, well, how can he be dead? Because I think about him all the time. I channel what he would do all the time. I talk to yeah. him in his mind. I have the sensation of him around me all the he, time. He's not he's dead. Not dead. He, his body died. Yes. Yes. Body died. That's it. Yeah. That is a real death, you know. But I'll give you, there are many types of deaths. My father died twice because he had Alzheimer's for 10 years. So he died when his brain was no longer the brain of the person who was my father. And then his body died five years after that. And both deaths were really painful. But there's a third existence that he has within me. And, you know, we don't tend to think about this biologically, but also in my DNA, and therefore the DNA of my children, and theirs, and theirs, and theirs. And I think it's all beautiful. That's why I called that book, The Beauty of What Remains. And this new book called for you when i am gone is really an opportunity i'm presenting people you know people think it's all oh, leader wrote another book about death no 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 this is really a book about your life and you know we're going through this great reevaluation right now i know you're living it with your kind of new life and this novel you're writing and i'm living it and we're all reevaluating and this book is a series of questions. There are 12 questions that enable every person who's willing to, to answer them to reevaluate their life and their legacy. Because what I have found with my father's death is I miss not a single material thing about my father. I mean, I have his hat on the shelf behind me and I have a couple of his old tools. But that's it. What I really cherish, the inheritance I really cherish, are the values, the laughter, the music, the food, my love of nature. That's his legacy. His powerful bullshit meter, his powerful moral compass, his love of peoplehood. That's what we want to be sure we bequeath to our loved ones when we're gone. But it's more than just a bequest. Because when you ask yourself questions like, what is love? What makes me happy? What has been my greatest failure? What do I regret? What do I want my epitaph to be? What would I say at my own funeral as a final blessing to my loved ones? These are the kinds of questions that enable us to ask whether or not we are living the life we say we believe in and the life we say matters. It's, it's what I call alignment. You know, we're all a little out of alignment, every human being. You know, we all have a set of professed and believed values and then there are lived values and they're never completely aligned. You know, I tell my kids, I hope you're close, but I haven't called one of my sisters in three months. So, you know, I mean, we all, we all have a little of that. Okay. But 
I think the pandemic and this book are an opportunity to really ask ourselves, am I living my truth? Or is my life some kind of kabuki? And if I'm not living my truth, what am I going to do about it? So that I can speak and live with integrity as I age. And maybe this is what happened when Peter died for you to some degree. Like, what am I doing with my inner and outer life? And am I living in a truthful way? Mm -hmm. Or is it Kabuki, that's just so important for us and for the legacy we leave. My editor asked me, well, how long did it take you to come up with these questions and put them in this order? And I said, it took me 35 years and 15 minutes. <laughs> because these questions are the questions I ask families when I do what's called an intake meeting, which is when I sit with families to try to understand the truth of their loved one's life so that I can write a eulogy about this person. And, you know, when I, when I teach rabbinical students, again, I always talk to them about the difference between an obituary and a eulogy. An obituary gives you the facts of a person's life. A eulogy should give you the truths of a person's life. You know, the mm -hmm. fact that I was born on June 3rd in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, doesn't tell you very much. It's a set of facts. What I'm trying to get to when I need to tell a person's story is the truth of their life. And these questions are the questions I've been asking families for 35 years to get to the truth of a person's life. And that is a beautiful journey. You know, like Marshall McLuhan said, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish. Isn't <laughs> that great? What yeah. does a fish know? It's born in water, lives in water, dies in water, doesn't know it's in water, has no perspective on its own life. Yeah. When does a fish discover water? Yeah. When it's jerked out of the water at the, and it's wriggling and flailing at the end of a hook. That's when a fish discovers water. When something disruptive happens. And that's what happened when Peter died, peacefully yeah. as it was for him. It, yeah. was, it was disruptive for you. It jerked you out of the water. Yeah, broke me open. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. 
This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. So interesting too, you know, going back to this idea of devar, the word for thing or word, because we, you know, culturally, as if we're responsible adults, right, we make a will and we determine where all of our physical things will go. Right. And and then this is a call actually for, you know, what you describe as, as an ethical will, which is part of the Jewish tradition for millennia, mm-hmm. but it is the word, right? It is like, what are the sentiments? What are the values, which having been through this experience is ultimately infinitely the thing that you want? Because we always think we're, we're waiting, right? Also to be like, we'll have time. We'll have time to tell everyone who yes. we care about how we feel. Another COVID lesson, which, right? We're all, I think we all had our sense of invulnerability pierced. We're all vulnerable. And you really never know. You really never know. I don't know about you, Elise, but I have found myself in the midst of and post-pandemic expressing love so much more frequently and effusively than before. And I, I don't think I was a you know withholding person before. But when I meet a friend now for a drink or I talk to one of my kids or I finish a Zoom with colleagues at work, I literally say, I love you. I really, I love you. I love you too. And I'm, I'm ending texts with, you know, I love you. I love you at a heart. I didn't used to do that. Mm. And I think it is because of this omnipresence of impending doom or at least vulnerability. And, and I think that's a positive force if we don't allow it to consume us. But if we allow it to ennoble us, yeah, right? Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. Wow. Wow. Can your life be worthy of Peter's death? Yes. That's ennobling. That's powerful. So this idea of an ethical will pushes us beyond the idea that the material will somehow express something important to our loved ones because it doesn't. You know what? One of the saddest moments of my life, it's still really hard to talk about. Almost everything that was my father's ended up in a heap on the basement floor. Mm -hmm. The goodwill didn't even want it. Mm -hmm. That's not his legacy. You know, 
believing that our estate plan is going to nourish our loved ones is like trying to feed them a picture of food. Mm. It, it's, it's not nourishing the paperweight collection or the fountain pens or the what nobody cares. So let's leave our loved ones words because that is real in a way things never could be or will be. And, and let's not wait. You know, someone asked me the other day if I had to kind of give the book, you know, in two words, what is the real message of this book? And it just flew out of me. I, I didn't know the question in advance and it took me no time to respond. I said, don't wait. Mm -hmm. Don't wait to tell the people you care about of your love, of your life lessons, of your hopes and dreams and blessings for them, don't wait. I didn't know my last conversation with my father was my last conversation with my father. Because one day, one visit, he could talk. And the next, he never really spoke again. So, and I don't think this is a dark reason. I think it's a powerful and beautiful reason to create an ethical will. You know, you're a writer, so you know, you never out earn the advance. So what I'm about to say has nothing to do with money. Okay. <laughs> right. You never get more, you never out earn the advance because the accounting is just so bogus when it comes to books. Right. So I really hope that this book inspires hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, to take the time to ask themselves these questions and answer them for themselves and for their loved ones when they're gone. It is the only gift that will matter. It is the only bequest. It is the only inheritance that will really matter. I know. I am inspired. Well, you've inspired me to do it. I've been thinking oh. about it. I'm going to do it this weekend to my kids and my husband. That's so great. Well, yeah, see, no, I really... To me... And, and I'm not, we barely know each other, but I'm quite sincere in saying this to you. To me, knowing that makes writing the book worthwhile. It's enough for me. It's more than enough that one person is going to go through this process and leave something of real value. Yeah. And then the one practical thing that I did do, which I would append to this, which is make a Google Doc with your <laughs> passwords, your wishes, your information, like don't don't send your loved ones on a, a scavenger hunt right. for the parts of your life. Like we also, because people are so scared of this or unprepared for this, there are ways, because as you mentioned, like you're eulogizing someone, all you want in that moment, even though they're gone, is to honor their wishes but if you don't know what they are you can't do it so that's right yeah. there's and, that as well yeah and and i see the difference when i'm dealing with a family where after a death the anxiety level the 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 chaos that exists when the person who died did not plan 
mm-hmm. is is extreme. It's enormous. And often we're dealing with an elderly surviving spouse for whom it is just too damn much. Yeah. You want yeah. to do that to someone you say you love? Yeah. And That's you know, there are other parts of this too, at least like people, it, it, my wife says this to me all the time when we're watching some horrific story on TV or something. She'll say, if that ever happens to me, just shoot me. Well, if that ever happens, just shoot me is not a plan. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't do that. So it doesn't work. <laughs> no, you really need to lay it out very specifically. Yeah. There are eat forms that will help guide you to do it. And, and it's, it's actually a very powerful life affirming experience. It helps clarify what you believe is valuable about life. That's, that's the power of death. And so, you know, and I, I have to circle back to this idea, which you articulated, you know, that I talk about in the book that in Hebrew, you cannot differentiate between words and things. They're the same. You know, I'll tell you something interesting, you know, abracadabra that magicians say, that's an Aramaic phrase from the Talmud. Abara kedibara, as I speak, I create. Mm. Words create. Look at the Bible, and God said, yeah. "Let yeah. there be light," and there was light. Yeah. Words, we create worlds of meaning with our words. You know, whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me was completely wrong. I don't remember my many skin knees from childhood, but boy, I remember being, I remember when I got up to bat for Little League every time and all the kids yelling, Little Eater, Little Eater, because I was the shortest kid on the team, or hey, get off your knees, stand up. Mm. I remember that, right? So words are very matter. They really they matter. They're very real and they can hurt and they can heal. And they can bestow a legacy upon your loved ones and they can help you live your truth. That's really and what they, the about. And just to tie our whole wide ranging conversation, the stories that we tell about ourselves matter and they can also evolve and change. And yeah. Ariel Ruckheiser wrote this poem in which she said, the world is not made up of atoms. The world is made up of stories. And it's true. Our bodies disintegrate. Our life is really defined by our story. And whose stories have, have historically mattered, but as we are also recognizing, like, that's not the whole story. So as we move forward, how do we put together a tapestry that's actually increasingly accurate that's why the book asks questions that are indelicate have you ever had to cut a top someone toxic out of your life why what is your biggest failure what is your biggest regret right Mm -hmm. because if you're not willing to be vulnerable in that way you will never really share your truth you will never live your truth and so yes the it is the imperfection in a way i'll put it this way be a little religious again if you'll forgive me (laughs) so there is uh there's a phrase in the bible that says god puts god's words upon our hearts 
And the rabbis of the Talmud, the sages asked this question, why upon our hearts and not in our hearts? I mean, surely if God has the power to put words upon our hearts, God could put words in our hearts. And here's the answer they give. They say God puts words upon our hearts and it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. So in other words, in certain ways, and this goes back to you, your feelings after Peter died, in certain ways we are actually more whole when broken. And therefore when we're telling our story and articulating our story and living our story, the brokenness of it is also part of its beauty and power. And I wish there was another way. Believe me, it's not worth the tuition to learn these lessons, okay? But we don't have a choice. We just don't have a choice about that. And what we do have a choice about is, is whether or not we're worthy of that suffering you know are we going to come out of hell empty-handed or not most of us come out ennobled broken and whole because it's only that level of vulnerability and authenticity and truth that will enable them to embrace our story and live and grow from it i hope you all are inspired as well to think about the words that you would leave with the people that you love. I can't, having gone through this experience, what I wouldn't give for a last letter from Peter. And I know we think that we say these things all the time and we express them all over the place and we're all making so much content, right? And tracking our lives and commemorating our lives with photographs, but that in of itself can be an overwhelming project to go back into and a painful project. And so there's something about the simplicity of last words that not only feels like such a gift, but it also, I think as Rabbi Steve was saying, is an opportunity to lean into our own lives and ensure that that alignment that he's spoken of that is so essential to all of us is present in how we're passing our time. And I wanted to leave you with this quote from his book, which I thought was really beautiful. Steve writes, the Nobel Prize winning author Isaac Bashevis Singer said, the dead don't go anywhere. They're all here. Each man is a cemetery an actual cemetery in which lie all our grandmothers and grandfathers, the father and mother, the wife, the child. Everyone is here all the time. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. 
I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.